Turn your Bibles again to the book of Titus. As we begin our study of this wonderful letter from Paul to a pastor, normally uh, referred to as a as a young man, but I, I'm not sure that we really know exactly how old Titus was, as opposed to uh, Timothy. We know he was probably young, but at any rate, uh, we will begin our study this morning uh, the way we normally do, by going through some introductory material, but having finished our study of the book of Revelation and its emphasis on the future and things that are going to happen in the, in the future and judgment and all of those kinds of things, I think it's appropriate to sort of pull back a little bit and see what we ought to do, be doing in the meantime uh, before Christ comes again for us. It's very easy to get wrapped up in revelation and prophecy and all of those very interesting uh, things that are going to happen in the future and that we plainly see the stage being set for those things to happen. Uh, it's also good to be reminded that because those things are going to happen, we ought to uh, order our lives today in preparation uh, for, as our, a couple of our hymns mentioned, meeting the Lord. Because after all, uh, before those terrible things come upon the world, um, He is going to come again for us. And that doesn't mean life is going to be a breeze for us. I think it's going to do nothing but get worse before He does come again. And so we ought to be prepared. And we live in a time where the church in America is largely in disorder. And if you see, you can read the, uh, the subtitle there. Uh, order in the church is what Paul is admonishing Titus to do. And it, it, is, very, it is incumbent. It is very, beyond very important for the church to be orderly. And you see the evidence all around us of what happens when the church is not orderly. If you pay any attention to discernment-type ministries that kind of uh, spend most of their time critiquing uh, other ministries and, and churches and this kinds of thing, I think there's a place for that. We don't want to get too wrapped up in that and, and just live in negativity nonstop. That's not, that's not great for us to do. But nevertheless, you see all around us problems in the church, problems of immorality, uh, financial problems, uh, let alone the myriad of doctrinal issues that we see. The gospel is wrong. Uh, sanctification is wrong. The church service is wrong. Our financial uh, motivations and, and what churches are doing with their money and how they get it and all of these kinds of things is wrong. And all of these problems stem from a wrong view of the Bible or a misapplication of, of the truths that we find in the Scriptures. And so the letter of Paul to Titus being one of the last letters that Paul wrote, and we know that typically people kind of tend to focus on what's important in their lives as they're, they're getting towards the end of them. Uh, we see that Paul 
uh, thought that order in the church was one of the most important topics going and that he needs to uh, get these kinds of ideas down on paper or parchment or uh, papyrus, whatever he, whatever he actually originally wrote it on. He wanted it to be uh, memorialized for this man, Titus. And I personally believe that he knew very well when he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew it. Just like the Apostle John, we saw when he was writing Revelation, he knew very much that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he was writing these things. I, I think Paul experienced exactly the same thing. And so he knew he was coming to the end of his, of his life. Uh, he knew he had great problems with the Jewish authorities and therefore he was going to run into problems with the Roman authorities as well and they didn't mess around back then when when people got uh, on the wrong side of the law they typically lost their lives so Paul was recording what was very important to him and number one on the agenda for this letter to Titus is order in the church the church needs to be orderly in order to fulfill its intended purpose. And Paul is going to tell us in this letter how to have order in the church. And so again, we'll begin with uh, this introductory material here as we make our way into Titus, because one of the most prevalent mistakes in Bible interpretation and Bible study is not understanding the context of what is being written, whether it's a particular passage or an, an entire book of the Bible, you have to know where it fits into the scriptures and in order to understand properly what is being said. So like I say, uh, every time this topic comes up, when you take the, te- the uh, text out of the context, you're left with a con. Context. You take the text out, it's con. Uh, and so the Bible is used and misused uh, in, to prove any number of errant, errant ideas. And it always, always comes down to not understanding or misinterpreting the context. And so since the 400s, uh, Augustine and his followers have used the Old Testament to try to prove that the church has replaced Israel and uh, that God doesn't have anything to do with Israel anymore. The church are his chosen people and and so on and so forth it goes. All due to a misinterpretation of context or a misapplication of it. Uh, The Mormons, for example... Uh, In the 1800s, they used the Old Testament patriarchs to try to show, see, God God likes polygamy. And so uh, I'm going to have several wives. That's a a gross misunderstanding and misapplication of the truth of God's word. The, The New Apostolic Reformation, they used the Old Testament, misused the Old Testament to try to prove their their health and welfare, their uh, gospel and their uh, word of faith and all of these kinds of things in order to get themselves rich at the expense of the people. Uh, Pentecostals misinterpret the book of Acts, and the list, the list is endless of 
mistakes in context that lead to mistakes in doctrine. In fact, almost every doctrinal error has at its foundation a misunderstanding or a misapplication of the context of the passage or the text that is, that is being used. And so in order to avoid that mistake, we'll spend some time studying this introductory material. In fact, this is, this is more times than not, more often than not, it's my favorite part of the study, is learning the background uh, details of, of any book. And, and as a matter of fact, I mean, it's, it, is, it is critical to understand this information before you start your verse-by-verse study, even in your own personal study. Take the time to read through if you have a commentary or a, like Bribery Study Bible or Tom Constable's notes, whatever you're using as a commentary, read that information. I guarantee you that the author spent a lot of time <laughs> uh, gathering that information. It, it, is, it is critical to having a solid understanding of, of the text. And so in order to to uh, understand this, we'll, we'll be like good journalists. There, I, I'm not sure there are a lot of good journalists left anymore who ask the who, what, why questions. Instead, they just sort of uh, go to whatever the, uh, the powers that be want the story to be and then just parrot whatever that is. We don't want to do that with the Bible. We don't want the Bible to be fake news, so we want the real news. So we have to ask the hard-hitting questions. Who, what, where, when, why, from where is this coming, these kinds of things. So uh, don't. some of these are very easy to answer, so we're not going to be here for like three hours. Normally my, the messages have three points and it goes an hour or too long. Uh, this one has nine or ten. I'm not sure how many are up there, but Some of them are very easy. We'll look at who wrote it, who received it, when was it written, where was it written, what is it, what what are we actually studying here? That's important. What is it about? What's in it? What are the key passages and what is the main point? We begin with who wrote it. That's that's very important to, to understand who the person is who wrote it and uh what kind of a person were they? And so this one is easy. You go to Titus 1.1. First word of the text says, Paul. And we know who Paul is. Uh, if you're a good student of the Bible or you've spent any amount of time in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, you come to this character. Uh, he's not a character, he's a real person, by, by the name of Paul, originally Saul, of course, he grew up as a, as a Pharisee, uh, very steeped in the traditions of the Jewish religion, a zealot, if you will, uh, wanted to literally put people to death who went against uh, Judaism and held views contrary to what he felt was the correct way as, as a Pharisee. Uh, and, but of course, later came to salvation by faith in Acts chapter 9. We know that he, he met the Lord. The Lord confronted him. 
had a plan for his life to be an apostle to the Gentiles, one who would literally lay the foundation for the church, which we are uh, privileged to be a part of today. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And, and we see this right in again in the first sentence, the first word of the text, Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And so you see, Bible study, it's not all that hard, right? First word, who is this from? Paul. It's a little bit different than the way that we write a letter today. Uh, typically, we have dear Sally, dear John, whoever we're writing to is the first thing that we mention. Well, in the ancient times, and we see this even in business letters today, or uh, when we had to write military, when I was in the Navy, we had to write correspondence. If you needed to write a letter to someone or an email, the first thing you're going to write is who it's, who it's from, just the same way that, that Paul does here. And that, that kind of makes sense when you think about it. If you open a letter that's addressed to you, you don't need to read your name. You already this probably came in some kind of envelope that had your name on the outside. You open it up, and the first thing you read is, Dear Kurt, well, I know who I am. Who are you? <laughs> and so that's what uh, Paul is doing here. And so, so we have our first answer. Now, believe it or not, people are going to question that, and people have questioned it throughout history. However, it's the first word of the text. Paul is revealing who he is right here in the very beginning. Sort of reminds me of the book of Genesis. And how did this whole place come into existence that we are living on? Well, if we give the Bible any credence at all, Genesis 1.1 gives us the answer of how this world came into existence. God said it. God spoke and the world came into existence. Right from the very beginning, we lay the foundation for what our attitude ought to be towards God's word. Same, same idea here in the book of Titus. Scripture says so. Paul is the author of this letter. Again, he was a Pharisee saved by grace, the chief among sinners, uh, he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. You're going to notice that throughout our study, we're going to make, be making a lot of references to 1 and 2 Timothy, as well as Titus, as these letters are intimately tied together in kind of their, their method and, and what is actually being spoken. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, among whom I am foremost of all, or I am the chief of sinners. Paul recognizes several times his, how his sin separated him from the God of the universe, and how he is saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, the one who paid the penalty for his sins. We know that Paul, uh, through the book of Acts and uh, through his later writings, 
that he was the apostle to the Gentile people. The world can essentially be divided into two kinds of people, according to to the uh, scriptures at any rate, or two races of people. There are Jewish people and there's everybody else. Gentiles are everybody else. And the Jewish people make up a very, very small minority of those who are in the world. And so when Paul makes the, the statement that he is the apostle to the Gentiles, wow, he's got a, he's got a pretty big audience there. Galatians 2.7, Paul writes that, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentile people, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. I'm not sure if you ever really considered that, but Paul has, has quite a mission here. Peter, being a, a, an apostle to the Jewish people, he's got this little audience of, I don't know, I think there are estimates there are about 13 million uh, Jewish people in the world today. Did you? The state of Michigan has about 10 million people. And our population is not booming here in the state of Michigan. So that's in comparison to the entirety of the world. Paul is the apostle to the Gentile people, to the uncircumcised, to the world, essentially. And as we have seen many times, he, he still made it a point to go to the Jewish people because after all, salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He would go to the Jewish people, present the gospel to, to them. They, on a large part, would invariably reject him. Some would believe, most would not, and he would go to the Gentile people. And so, believe it or not, uh, there are arguments against Paul's authorship. And the critical scholars, as they are known, are, will, and that doesn't just mean that they're always critical. That means that they're kind of, that they're trying to study the, the Bible with a critical eye to get to the, to the foundations of the truths. But invariably, they, they are liberal scholars and they seek to cast doubt on the veracity or the truth of the Bible. And they always, uh, uh, nearly always, have an argument for a reason to discount the plain reading of the text. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, the first sentence of the text says, they, however, will say, oh no, this is just someone claiming to be Paul, pretending to be Paul, trying to take the authority of Paul and write this letter to Titus or whoever this person is. We don't really know who he is either. Uh, and uh, he's just, it's just someone who's trying to, to kind of create a mystical sort of religious text if you will, claiming the authority of Paul and just sort of writing these, these truths down so to create some kind, of, some kind of religion. And again, invariably, that just does nothing but to cause doubt uh, towards the Scriptures. If someone other than Paul wrote this letter, uh, then the Bible, again, just becomes a religious text, no different than Hindu texts or, or really any other kind of uh, ancient writing. 
just some nice to know principles, you know, and, and you can kind of take what you like and disregard what you don't like. And just uh, we'll all get along great if we just do that. Uh, and however, if the Bible is what it says it is, it says it's the word of God. It makes claims in that direction. It makes claims on where the world came from, who Jesus Christ is, and what he did for humanity. If, if we accept that as being God's word, well, then we can't dis, just disregard what it says right here in the first sentence. If God is trying to inerrantly, because after all, as it says in verse 2, God, who cannot lie, it says, right right in the beginning, he can't lie to us if he is God, clearly, uh, as righteous and holy God, he cannot lie. I seriously doubt that he would allow someone to lie to claim some kind of authority. So obviously, uh, Paul is the author of this text. Uh, but however, they do have their, their arguments that they make, and this is just for your own benefit. If you hear somebody try, kind of disputing these things, it give you some ammunition to, to respond to. Uh, one of the main uh, critiques that the scholars will have doubting the authorship of Paul is that it doesn't fit within the book of Acts. The kind of the timeline that we see here that's laid out for us in the book of Titus doesn't fit within the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, and so, okay, <laughs> Paul doesn't die at the end of Acts. If you've ever studied the book, you know that he's, he's in his first Roman imprisonment there at the conclusion of the book of Acts. We know from history that he was later released and that he had a period of time between the end of the book of Acts and when he was imprisoned. We know that even from Scripture. The book of 2 Timothy shows that he was imprisoned again later after Acts and then subsequently died. But there is a period of about three to four years in between those two imprisonments, and that's where this letter fits in. It doesn't fit into uh, the book of Acts because it's written after, after that time. Uh, also, they will claim that it speaks of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is, is this idea that became very prominent in the second century. This is in the first century, of course, A.D., uh, where Paul is writing this. But this idea of Gnosticism became very prominent in, well, put it this way, it became a, a set kind of religion, if you will, in the second century, not in the first century. And so since Paul mentions knowledge and, and uh, mentions a little bit of the, the teachings of Gnosticism, well, then clearly he couldn't have written this in the first century because that didn't become prominent until the second century. Uh, there's some problems with that, obviously. He's not directly refuting all of the teachings of Gnosticism. And so what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is essentially, the word means knowledge. And, and it's based in the idea of dualism. That what is spiritual is good, 
and what is physical is bad. And so uh, this leads to all kinds of issues in theology and in our understanding of, of who God is. We know that that isn't true. First of all, everything that is physical is not necessarily bad because after all, Jesus Christ came in a physical body, did he not? If he didn't, we have some issues with our, our sin. Our sin hasn't paid, been paid for if Jesus Christ didn't physically come to the earth and pay the penalty, shed his blood, and lose his life for our sins, then we are still dead in our sins. So, uh, And everything spiritual is not good. <laughs> we, we don't, uh, if you'll remember Ephesians, we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against spiritual forces of darkness. So everything spiritual is not good, and everything physical is not bad. Uh, and even though Paul, Paul does mention knowledge and uh, maybe hints at some Gnostic sort of ideas, that doesn't necessarily mean that Gnosticism had to be a full-fledged religion when this letter was written. We see Paul make references to, to Gnostic ideas in the book of Colossians as well that he wrote during his first uh, Roman imprisonment. Another one of the arguments that the scholars will use is to say that, well, this, the book of Titus and First and Second Timothy, it uses language completely different from other books that we know that Paul wrote, like Romans and uh, First and Second Corinthians. And oh, by the way, you'll find scholars who doubt that as well. Uh, but that, that actually makes sense. He's writing about a different topic. He's not writing to the church at at large in in first and second Timothy and Titus, as we're going to see, he's writing to an individual pastor, talking about different topics. So of course his language is going to be different. There really are no valid arguments against Paul, the apostle, the one that we know from the book of Acts, being the author of this letter. To deny that Paul is the author is to deny the Bible itself. There is no such thing as a pseudonymous book or letter in the Bible. Uh, pseudonymous, a uh, fancy word for a, a book or a letter that is written under a false name or claiming somebody else's name. There are no books of the Bible that are that way. That is why many of the apocryphal books, in fact, are rejected, like the book of Enoch. Some people may come up to you and say, oh, yeah, the, the, the book of Enoch, have you ever heard of that book? It's, it's really great. The Gospel of Peter, why isn't that in the Bible? Well, it's not in the Bible because somebody under a false name wrote it and is claiming authority that they, that they don't have. So at the very outset, let alone the content, at the very outset, those books are to be rejected because they're written uh, with false authority. Uh, the whole reason for that sort of writing, which was prominent in the first and second century and even earlier, it, it was a prominent thing, uh, was to claim authority that you didn't that you didn't actually have. That's not the idea of what the scriptures are. They would, act, they would lose their authority if someone was claiming authority that they didn't have in order to write it. And so uh, Paul, the apostle, is 
the author of this letter that we are going to study. And I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say about Paul as we move forward. So who received the letter that we have here? Well, there's another one that's easy. It tells us right there in verse 4, to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from the God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Titus, this person who is actually mentioned very uh, quite often in Paul's letters, is the one who receives this letter. It is believed that he was saved through the ministry of Paul at some point. Again, it's not recorded exactly for us in the book of Acts when Titus came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, we know that he did, as Paul refers to him there in verse 4, my true child in a common faith. Uh, as referring to him as his true child, it's most likely that Paul is the one who brought the gospel to Titus, and he believed it and was therefore saved through that common faith. Notice that that word will have a lot of emphasis on that idea in the coming weeks as we study these opening verses, this common faith that Titus has. See, a person is not saved outside of anything other than faith in Jesus Christ. There is, there is a great emphasis in this letter on good deeds, doing good deeds, working for the Lord and this kinds of thing. However, that is not what is saving the individual Titus is said to be Paul's spiritual child here, or child in the common faith. Titus had to believe what Paul was saying to him in order to come to salvation. He was a very early companion of Paul. So Paul it's really had to have met him at some point very early on in his uh, ministry for the Lord. We see that in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where Paul is, is making his defense of his ministry to the Galatians as he's going to reprimand them for their return to legalism, actually. Galatians 2, verses 1 through 3 says, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Same, same person. Uh, verse 3, he goes on to say, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Again, show, the Galatians were returning to the idea of needing to be circumcised in order to be God's child, like the Israelites were. Uh, Paul is telling them, no, that's, that's a false idea. That is not required in order to have salvation, maintain your salvation, be a better Christian, or anything along those lines. That's legalism, and that's excluded from the gospel. Titus, even though he was one of Paul's main companions and was with him throughout his earthly ministry as a Christian, was not circumcised. He was clearly taught not to be a legalist. Uh, he, he's mentioned often by Paul, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, 2, uh, Galatians, 2 Timothy, he's mentioned uh, in, in those letters quite often. Uh, he perhaps probably delivered the severe letter that went to the Corinthians, if you'll uh, 
If you're familiar with that, it's a letter that is now lost to us, but in uh, 2 Corinthians 2, we see Paul referring to Titus as the one who delivered this letter. He could have uh, delivered 2 Corinthians as well as he traveled to them. He, he clearly had a heart for the Corinthian people and the, the, the kind of problems that they had, and Paul would send him to, to help deal with those situations. Uh, he obviously must have had a great deal of tact, uh, be a diplomatic person in order to deal with the Corinthians and some of their issues, as well as starting new churches. We're going to see that, that Titus was charged with the idea or with the task of starting new churches on the island of Crete. And so clearly he was, uh, must have been a, a hard worker, a great administrator, have a lot of tact, like a diplomat. Uh, he was trusted with collecting funds for, uh, in Corinth for the believers in Judea, obviously a very trustworthy person as well. He was sent to put things in order on Crete, so he knew his business. He knew what Paul expected of him. Paul is reminding him of those things here in this letter, uh, maybe giving him some more hints about how to do this, but nevertheless, Paul clearly trusted him implicitly with the, the truth of the gospel, uh, with finances for people, and with uh, dealing with issues that people would have in the church. And if any group of people had issues, it was the Corinthians. And Titus was sent there to help with that. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4.10, we see that he was later sent to Dalmatia, which is actually modern-day Croatia. Titus was sent there to do some, some work for the Lord. And tradition will tell us that Titus uh, died on the island of Crete. And this is a traditional kind of painting of Titus. And unfortunately, when you, when you look up paintings of uh, people from the Bible, they're often uh, depicted in kind of a Catholic way with their halos and, and all of this kind of thing. So uh, maybe that's what Titus looked like. I'm not really sure. Uh, the churches obviously also received this letter. Again, I'm sure Paul was, knew that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he was writing this. Uh, Titus would not have kept it to himself. So, oh, this is my letter. You can't, you're not allowed to read this. I guarantee you that he read it to the churches uh, because after all, pastors were to dedicate themselves to the public reading of Scripture. That is one of the main things that Paul said, uh, told Timothy that they ought to be about. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Those are the three main things that a pastor ought to be concerned with in a church service, and that a church service ought to be, uh, ought to be about. Reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching from the scriptures. So clearly Titus would have read this letter to the churches that he was uh, told to go to. Uh, Titus 1.5, for this reason, Paul says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. 
He was to go to Crete and build churches. So obviously, uh, so that they would understand his authority and who he is and where he's coming from, he would have read them this letter. And furthermore, uh, we're going to see that this letter uh, describes elders. We saw that in our scripture reading, who elders are, what they ought to, to be like, what they are to be about, what they're to be doing. The church needs to understand that. The church needs to know who their leaders ought to be. Uh, Because after all, if the church doesn't know who their elders ought to be, you end up with some churches that are uh, going to be headed down the wrong track. It's it's a virtual guarantee. You could end up with a church like Hillsong, or the list is endless of churches that have pastors or elders who aren't who they ought to be, and it causes nothing but problems. We're going to see that Paul is going to tell Titus uh, what believers ought to know, what you ought to be teaching, the kinds of things that you need to teach. Well, guess what? A church needs to know what they ought to be learning in order to know what they should be learning. (laughs) Kind of makes sense. It's a big circle there, but nevertheless, it's very true. Like the Bereans, they went back to the scriptures to be assured that what Paul was saying to them was true. People in the church, believers, need to know what they need to know. And then it's the job of the pastor to teach them more in depth the things that they ought to know. And also, very importantly, believers need to know how they're supposed to be acting. Because after all, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Doctrine leads to duties. In other words, the truth of the Bible is given to us, not just so that we can know facts and and be kind of held up as super spiritual and this kind of thing. No, it is given to us so that we know how to act. And the, the fancy way to say that is orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Uh, good orthodoxy always leads to good orthopraxy. That's a pretty, that's a pretty bold statement. When you have problems in the church, there's something wrong in your doctrine. Always, 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 that is the case. And when doctrine slips or slides, eventually it's going to affect the way that the people are acting. And this is, the, this is Paul's pattern in nearly every one of his letters that he writes to churches in particular. He begins with doctrinal truths and then proceeds to the duties that the, that the people are to have. We see it in Romans. Romans 1 through 11 is essentially about doctrine and its implications. Romans 12 through 16 is the duties. How do we then therefore live? Ephesians, we saw Ephesians 1 through 3, uh, doctrine, Ephesians 4 through 6, duties. How should we then act? Churches need to understand what they are supposed to know, and they need to then, therefore, know how they are to act. And that is exactly what we find 
in this letter, when we uh, dig below the surface, we see that, oh, Paul is telling Titus, you need to appoint elders. They need to be a certain kind of person. They need to be doing and teaching along these lines. And then, therefore, the people will uh, act in a certain way, properly motivated to follow the Lord. So uh, who received it? Titus and also, by extension, the churches. When was it written? Now we'll start to, to move a little faster as we make our way through. It was written, again, uh, in between the first and second imprisonment of Paul, probably in the time range of 64 to 66, before Second Timothy. Uh, a good timeline for these this group of letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, is First Timothy first, then Titus, and Second Timothy is invariably held up as the last letter to be written. Again, it doesn't fit into the uh, into the timeline of Acts because uh, it's written after the book of Acts concludes with Paul imprisoned in Rome. Crete is only mentioned in Acts 27 as the only other place besides Titus that this island of Crete is mentioned. And if you'll remember, that's on the way that uh, Paul is traveling to Rome. They they, uh, make landfall in Crete. Paul warns the, the, the ship captain and the Romans to, hey, we probably ought to stay here. It's not gonna uh, go too well if we try to travel on from here. They disregard them. They want to get to Rome, and it gets very bad, and they end up shipwrecking on Malta. But that's the only place that Crete is is really mentioned in the New Testament, other than and here in uh, Titus that that Titus is left there to kind of get the the church off on the right foot on this island of Crete. And so the critical scholars, again, are going to say, say that, well, this doesn't fit with the Acts timeline. It's got to be somebody else just claiming to be Paul. And we, we mentioned how that uh, just does great damage to the, the word of the Lord and, and has a valid explanation to just say, well, he wrote it after the book of Acts. We know this from history that, he, that there was... Uh, a time that Paul was alive after he was imprisoned in in Rome, and it falls into uh, that timeline, A.D. sixty four to sixty six, a good date for the letters of uh, this letter of Titus to from Paul to Titus. So it's written by Paul, written to Titus in 64 to 66 AD. Where was it written from? Again, this is an easy one. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Nobody else really knows either. Uh, And so uh, one possible conclusion is this city called Nicopolis. We see towards the end of the letter, and also notice this letter isn't very long. There were probably some chapters in uh, Revelation that had more verses than this entire letter has. Uh, But Titus 3.12, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, 
for I have decided to spend the winter there. And so does that mean that Paul was there when he was writing the letter, or was he somewhere else and just intended to travel to Nicopolis? Uh, I don't know. One or the other. Uh, the, we can't know for sure. Uh, clearly, Paul is not imprisoned at the time of this writing, uh, as he, uh, he never mentions being in chains or being uh, the ambassador in chains and these kinds of things that he does. In his other letters, he has the freedom to be able to travel. He wants to spend the, the winter there in Nicopolis. That doesn't sound all bad, actually, as we see uh, where this city is. There's Greece and the Mediterranean uh, and the Aegean Sea, and that was Crete down there just south of, of Greece, and there's Nicopolis on the western coast of, of Greece. Not a bad place to, to spend the winter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a guess. It's, a, it's an interesting city from history, Nicopolis. It was founded by Octavian, uh, Roman emperor, if you'll remember your history, uh, 29 B.C., he founded this city, and it was, uh, if we're up on our Greek, we know uh, Nico or Nike, you might remember that from our study of Revelation, meaning victory or overcomer, this kind of uh, language. And polis is, means city in Greek, so this is the city of victory. Octavian founded this city, again, 29 BC, after he defeated uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, in 31 BC at the uh, Battle of Actium. Actium is down here on this side of the bay. Uh, Octavian's forces defeated Mark Antony and his kind of rebellion, and so he uh, founded this city up here on the northern end of the bay called Nicopolis, City of Victory. And it became a very important kind of trading city and pretty prominent in the area. It became the capital of the Roman province there. And that is where Paul uh, spent his uh, winter, or was at least planning to, and probably could have written this letter from there. The, the two options are either Macedonia, which is northern Greece, essentially, or this city, Nicopolis, on the coastline, being the places where it was written. So what is it? It is a pastoral epistle. These are known as First and Second Timothy and Titus are the pastoral epistles, meaning that they were these are letters written to pastors as opposed to the Pauline epistles, as they are known, uh, letters that he wrote to churches. Uh, Philemon is actually uh, written to an individual. The rest of these are written to church bodies, the Pauline epistles. Uh, and so that's where this fits. Of course, just these are just kind of uh, categories of the New Testament. You have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts being a historical book. Uh, the, the Pauline epistles, letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, and then general epistles, Hebrews, a lot of people will put that up here as being written by Paul. Uh, it's included in the general epistles with James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Jude, and Revelation, of course, kind of in a category. 
of its own. But this is, this is a letter written by Paul the Apostle to a pastor, uh, church leader, if you will, a church planner, missionary, administrator, teacher, uh, a jack-of-all-trades Titus must have been. And it fits into the category of a pastoral epistle. And so what is it about? That's another easy question. We get that right from uh, 1 Timothy 5, or 1, 5, and the following verses. It is how to have order in a church, and how do we do that? Well, like any organization, an organization has to have a leader or leaders. And so that's step one in how to have order in the church. And then step two is to teach believers how to live. And so while there are many theories and practices about how to appoint elders, how many to have, how, what their role is, how, uh, how to select them and this kind of thing, we're going to be studying this in the coming weeks. What we're, spoiler alert, what we're going to find is the Bible doesn't give us a set a number of steps or or rules that must be followed in order to select elders and this kinds of this kind of thing there's a little bit of leeway there for churches to make their own decisions in that regard however there is no leeway uh, at least according to the bible as to the qualifications for elders in spite of what we're going to hear in the modern uh, Christendom and this kind of thing, uh, there isn't a lot of leeway that's mentioned here in the scriptures. You have to kind of massage things and twist them to make them to fit something other than what the plain reading of the text tells us. And number one uh, on that list is that the elder has to be a man. And that's going to ruffle some feathers in, in Christendom, especially today. But notice verse 6 of Titus 1. If you're supposed to appoint elders, you're going to set things in order. And how do you do that? You appoint elders, step number one, in every city as I directed you. Verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach. Oh, and if that's not clear enough for you, this individual has to be the husband of one wife. So that makes it pretty clear. And what you're going to find everywhere that this topic is discussed, it's the same, it's the same language. It is a man, and then this man has some attributes that go along with him. And this isn't to step on anybody's toes or to, to make life difficult for one uh, gender over another or, or anything along those lines. It is to have order. And it's the same in the family. The man isn't set up to be the head of the household because he is somehow intrinsically better or more important than the woman. That is the way that God has designated for there to be order in the family, order in the church, and order in society in general. That, that's the way that God has, has determined it to be. And of course, this is uh, becoming, if not already, the topic of the day in evangelicalism. Uh, the SBC convention, their 
kicking out some churches that have female pastors, and, and you see it all over uh, evangelicalism in general. And it's only going to get uh, to become more of an issue as we move forward. And it's not, uh, being a man isn't the only qualification. We're going to see that, that there's a whole list, a litany of requirements for the pastor. Uh, and again, after being a man, number one on the list of, of moral qualifications is that he's, that he's going to meet, need to be sexually pure as well. And, and this is an issue in, in the church also. Some denominations knowingly, desiringly, wanting to have homosexuals and, and transgenders as their leaders. I actually just saw an article this past week. Uh, typically, when you read these articles, it's, oh, you know, the ones who want the homosexual pastors are kind of, uh, you know, people are separating from them. That's what the article is about. This one, exactly the opposite. An Anglican church that wants to join the United Methodist Church so that they can uh, knowingly appoint homosexual elders. And this is going to become mainstream if we stay on this path. Uh, and so this is why it's incumbent upon us to study these things and to know them, know what the Bible tells us, know the context, know who this is being directed to, and know what our uh, opinions of it ought to be. And so when we know that, we can be courageous and take our stand for the truth of the Scriptures rather than falling with everyone else. When we know what the Bible says, and we, just, we don't have to stand on our own authority or in our own kind of thinking. Uh, well, the Bible says it needs to be a man. The Bible says he needs to be uh, sexually pure. He needs to be the husband of one wife. He needs to be all of this litany of things. And uh, it's not me saying it. It's God saying it in his word. And you can just kind of stand on that and, uh, and put the onus on God. <laughs> that's, that's one thing we always told our kids when they were growing up and they are getting older and there was something that, that uh, they didn't want to do or we didn't want them to do in a, a, with their friends or whatever. I, just tell them your dad said no. <laughs> it, don't worry about it for you. You put the onus on me. Tell them I said you can't do that and just leave it at that. We can do the same thing with God's Word. God's Word says X, and so I'm sticking with God's word and just kind of let the chips fall where they may. And of course, people are going to get offended about uh, when the Bible tells us how to live also. And the Bible very clearly tells us uh, what our actions ought to, ought to be. How we live is important. This is how the gospel gets spread among people. Unbelievers aren't impressed when you act just like they do. It has no impact in the world. Unbelievers, it seems, know how Christians ought to act more than Christians do often, oftentimes. And they know we're being hypocritical when we don't do it, and that does uh, nothing to, to bring them to Christ. So, 
uh, we'll be on that soapbox many, many times in the coming weeks. So how to have order in the church, appoint elders, and teach believers how to live. That's what it's about. What's in it? Here's a quick outline for you. I, I'll, uh, maybe I'll make some copies of this and hand them out as we go through uh, so that we'll see this slide quite often throughout our uh, time in the book of Titus. It begins with a salutation, the first four verses, how to have order in the church. That basically goes from uh, chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 3, verse 11. It is to appoint elders and teach believers. And then we're going to see uh, the qualifications of elders, their importance. Why is it important to have elders? Well, guess what? Uh, if the church doesn't have elders, somebody else is going to come in and step in and lead you. Uh, we see that playing out in the world. Uh, if the church doesn't appoint the elder, somebody else is going to come and do it. And that's what we see in verses 10 through 16. And so, Notice also in the teach believers, there's kind of a sequence here. There's older men, and then there's older women uh, teaching the younger women, and then there's young men down here, and then slaves. Uh, we'll get into that as well. But notice, notice where the youth are. Youth are down here in step number three, and in here with the older women teaching the younger women. The church isn't to be a youth movement in spite of uh, what we see in the world today, even in, in uh, cultural revolutions in China, uh, who did they go to? They went to the youth. Have you ever heard of the Hitler youth? Yeah, the, the, the Nazis went to the youth. The communists go to the youth. Who's the church going to these days? Uh-oh. <laughs> That's not the way it's supposed to be. The older people are to be the ones teaching the younger people. The younger people aren't to be, it's not a cultural revolution. Man, it sure seems like an awful lot of times uh, the world goes in the exact opposite direction of what the Bible tells us. So after we, after we learn what ought to be taught, we have a motivation for Christian living. And then, in, then we have the believer's relationship with the world in various areas, uh, towards government, towards people. Oh, another motivation for the believer's attitude we have there. Notice it's truth, then motivation. Why do we follow this truth? Uh, that same kind of pattern throughout. And then in his closing remarks, the last four verses there, his future plans. Again, an emphasis on elders leading by example, believers applying the truth, and then finally his farewell wishes. So not, not a long letter that Paul wrote here, but one that is packed with some very key ideas. And a couple of key passages, Titus 2.11 uh, says, probably familiar with this one, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Again, the pattern. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We have salvation by trusting in him. And then we are motivated to live good deeds. Faith, then deeds. Not the other way around. Not deeds, then salvation, then faith. That's completely the opposite. Faith in Christ, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then we are motivated to live for him because he desires for us to be godly. Good deeds are another one of the, of the common themes throughout Titus. They're mentioned throughout the letter. This is the very bedrock of the Christian life, of course. Uh, And if we aren't uh, living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, by extension, unbelievers really aren't going to want anything to do with our God. As, As Mike was mentioning in Sunday school, God separated the people of Israel to be a nation for him to live different than the, than the people around them, to attract them to the God of the universe. They decided to be just like the nations around them. And what impact would they have had on those surrounding nations? Your God's no different than ours. Look, you're not prospering. You're not getting anything good. In fact, he's punishing you. Why would I want to believe in that God? They would be saying, well, the Israelites weren't living up to the way that they should. The other key passage in this wonderful letter is found in Titus 3, 4. Down through verse 8, it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that be so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Paul always emphasizes that deeds don't save us. Here we we have it again. This is what makes biblical Christianity different from every uh, religion. Ultimately, every other religion is man's effort in order to be made right with God or their gods. It's always works. Uh, This is contrary to God's way of salvation. Through Jesus Christ, He is the only way. He is the one who paid for our sins. We receive forgiveness from God by trusting in what he's done for us. Then we live according to his word because God wants his people to be holy because he is holy. So what is the main point or the key principle of Titus? The church must be orderly. This is achieved through godly leaders who teach the word and believers who apply the truth to their lives. And we'll see these ideas uh, over and over again as we make our way 
through Titus. So who wrote it? The Apostle Paul. Titus received it and the churches that Titus started. Written 63, or 64 to 66 uh, in between the two uh, Roman imprisonments of Paul. Where was it written? Probably Nicopolis, maybe Macedonia in Greece, nevertheless. Uh, what is it? It's a pastoral epistle. It's about order in the church. A couple of key passages that uh, would be great to memorize. Titus 2.11 through 14 and Titus 3.4 through 8. And the main point is that the church has to be orderly, and that happens through appointing elders who teach believers how to live according to God's Word. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Titus. I thank you for this letter that is so relevant for us today as we uh, move into a world that is largely rejecting the truth of your word. And uh, even into a time where the church itself is rejecting your word. I just pray that we would be steadfast in our commitment to it that as a church and as individuals in our own lives, that we would be willing to submit to what we have in your word, that we would receive it as your word revealed to us, and that we know that you cannot lie to us and that you will only tell us the truth. I pray that we would accurately portray your word and accurately get to the root of the truth and that it, we would implant it in our hearts and in our souls so that we can be people who are pleasing to you. We will give you all of the glory in honor for this in advance, knowing that you will be faithful to complete the work that you have started in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.